I think one thing is to understand the place of learning and the fact that there will be no definitive place of learning. Learning will happen everywhere and all of the time. Um, and the importance of learning at work will just continue to grow in my view. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is Industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution. Our vocational voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVR. Hello, Simon. Hello, Steve. And Megan Lilly, Head of Workforce Development with the AI Group. Hello, Megan. Hi, Steve. Uh, welcome, both of you, to the podcast. Now, industry has never been static. Even though most of us might think how industrial histories had long periods in which work and roles have appeared to be stable. However, the very core of industry is innovation and competition and change. So perhaps today's discussion is not so much about the emergence of change, but of its pace. Whereas once changes would occur over the span of many decades, most of us are now encountering fundamental changes a number of times during a single career. Um, Megan, I'll turn to you first, because from your perspective as head of workforce development with the AI group, how provocative would it be for me to suggest that the next phase of industrial practice will mean the end of full-time permanent employment with one employer at a time? Well, that would be a wonderfully provocative thing to say, but I'm not quite sure that that's where our future is heading, at least in the near term. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that there is substantial change happening out there, and, and we all can see it, and we all experience it personally as well. But it doesn't mean it's even change. Uh, it's not happening everywhere at the same rate. So sometimes it's quite profound and deep and very, very rapid, like people get blindsided by the change, and other times it's slow, iterative and ongoing change. So I think to assume it's sort of one model of change or one model of disruption is not accurate. Um, and therefore I do think um, ongoing, um, permanent and full-time employment and potentially with one employer are part of the future ahead of us. But I think the most important thing in that is just let's just imagine that you're going to spend a lot of time with one employer and you're going to be full-time. That doesn't mean you'll do the same thing within the context of that job over that period of time. So the job will trans transition, um, but not necessarily your employment arrangements, although, of course, they could as well. Mm, following on from that, does that mean that whatever the next industrial revolution is, this, this fourth industrial revolution, it might not necessarily be one succinct set of attributes it could actually be so disparate that some of us might notice it more than other people well i think that's what's happening now i, I think jobs that are um, relatively easily automated they have some sort of routine nature to them are um, changing or disappearing as we speak you know and but in the past they used to be more manual jobs or um, the jobs of that ilk whereas now the capacity the digitization and automation and in uh, artificial intelligence those capabilities 
have meant that they're actually disrupting now what we you know used to not that long ago think were really permanent white collar jobs such as a lawyer or an accountant or an auditor so uh, anything that's got a routine basis to it whether it's manual or knowledge based I think they're the areas where we're going to see the disruption and they don't play out um, in one particular area or another so I think we need a, a fresh set of eyes to look at how this is unfolding and um, the next industrial revolution I'm not sure that we're going to see stop starts to this I'm not sure we're going to see a line that we can mark on a, a chart and say this one finished and that one started I think this is an ongoing space. Simon what does NCVR research tell us about the mega trends that are, are driving this change in work the workplace and in industry what are some of the key things you're seeing? Well first of all to perhaps talk about what do we mean by industry 4.0 because it means a lot of things to a lot of people and it's an easy label to put on things um, but in the context of the previous iterations of industry 1, 2, 3 uh, it is about big data analytics and those very recent changes in digitisation. We've had computerisation and digitisation for quite some time. This is the extra step that we're going through in, in mainly in a data-driven world. But Megan did mention the nature of how jobs are changing, how uneven that is. One of the things that we've seen and reflecting on history tells us a bit of a story here is in particular, I'm even referred to routine jobs, not manual jobs. And a lot of people tend to associate automation with manual jobs. That's not absolutely the case. There are plenty of manual jobs that, because they're not routine, are going to be more difficult to automate. And some of them are just the stuff that we'd probably all see on a day-to-day -day basis when you re renovate your house. A plaster is not easily automated. Um, <clears throat> at the other end of the spectrum, you have absolutely a trend for higher order skills. If you look at the employment changes over the last 10 years and going forward, if you speculate into the next 20 years, higher skilled jobs, professional jobs are taking over and areas of employment are declining, obviously places like agriculture, manufacturing and those sorts of things. So it is a quite an uneven split. What comes out of that that is very interesting is that the middle skills jobs are the ones that are most vulnerable out of all of this, and Megan mentioned routine activities. So you will need non-routine manual labour, you will need higher order skills for higher order jobs, but somewhere in the middle there, which covers a wide range of occupations, they are arguably more vulnerable to Industry 4.0. And that's the A word of automation, where you've mm. got routines. Megan, is automation a word that should keep us up at night and we should all be shivering in our beds? Uh, no, um, and in fact, I think um, automation's actually been around for an incredibly long time. And you know, I remember the first time I went and saw a auto automotive manufacturing plant, and the um, spray painting was robotic arms and stuff like that. It was all form automated, so there's nothing new about that. And in fact, it, you know, frankly, it's improved the quality of many jobs. I mean, you know, and taken people out of not only boring jobs, but sometimes not particularly safe jobs too. So, automation is here to stay and it's been around for a long time I think there's a difference between automation and digitisation and digitisation is a much more complex set of things happening in a production line compared to automation um, but I don't think we need to fear it because I, I think there's a lot of evidence emerging that um, you know where digitisation um, may potentially remove jobs and often jobs that you know, maybe they've had their day and it's time to move on from them. 
Um, but it actually is many jobs get created. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of evidence about job creation around any of these waves of reform that we're going forward with, particularly, you know, including the digitised reforms. However, um, one thing that does happen is when jobs get lost, so they get lost because they've been automated or digitised out of existence, it's usually a headline because it's a lot of people in one go. And so everyone remembers that story, but people don't hear the other story with lots of jobs, one by two, by three, by four, being you know created all over the economy um, to digitisation. So they're different looking jobs in different places. So um, you know it's a sort of an apple and banana, and, and um, you know we, we make unfair comparisons at times. But no, we should not be fearing automation, and we should not be fearing digitisation. If we embrace it, it will play out well for us. And there are a couple of other nuances to this um, this this topic, it's from where I sit. Firstly, just because the ability to automate or or, or digitise is available, doesn't always mean that it's employed because of social pressures or the cost of deploying it. Uh, is that fair to say? Is is are they some of the factors that might inhibit the adoption of some of these new changes? Well, I, I think uh, in any change that you would embark upon the change because there's a benefit for the change. So you'd have to look at sort of what the benefit is. And um, it workplaces um, are much more complex and dynamic um, than just simply making or doing something. There's a whole sort of um, upstream and downstream around it. So there's a complex set of um, issues that go into that. And increasingly um, in any workplace, whether it's... Um, automated and digitised or not, the need for, um, you know, higher level knowledge-based skills, creativity, problem solving and sort of that EQ in the workplace, they're incredibly important things and so that is all part of the much bigger equation that we need to think about in terms of what the future of work will look like. It's not just a digitisation story. And in your time with the Australian Industry Group, are you familiar with how much uh, industry and the people in charge of corporations and companies uh, give thought to the social impact of changes, the human uh, impact of any changes they might make? Oh, look, I think um, employers are acutely aware of that. I mean, they, um, you know, many of the, um, most of the economy in, in Australia is SME, are SMEs, so people know each other in the workplace and, you know, that, that um, is a very important element of how workplaces operate. Um, and my sense is that workplaces are all um, in their own way facing these challenges because they're real and, and, you know, all of us have got a smartphone in our pocket these days, so they're part of our life, not just our working lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very conscious um, of um, the new sets of skills that are emerging or being required. Um, sometimes you can transition your workforce into those newer arrangements, but sometimes not. Some people, some people don't want to make those transitions. So it's, there's a lot that goes into that space, and that's, I guess, where you would say that there's a, um, a public policy um, priority in the sense that um, how do you actually deal with those transitions um, for the greater good, um, rather than get an uneven and at times unfortunate response from it. So I think they're live issues, both from that big public policy perspective, but company by company by company, because they they are people. Um, and as I say, SMEs, everyone knows everyone. And so there's a lot of um, imperative. I also think people fundamentally want to work for a successful organisation. That's one thing. But in Australia, 80% of our workforce is employed in the services industry. So 
I believe as we go into this conversation, we need to be mindful that that's where the majority of Australian workers are, which possibly sets us in a, in a different position to the, the average, the global average. Yes, and some parts of the service industry can be heavily impacted by Industry 4.0, you know, in the broader definition that Simon gave before, and I, and I too don't get too stuck on labels because I think we we know the trend we're talking about. Mm. Um, and the service, some parts of the services sector will be very mightily impacted by it, um, but a lot of it won't. Um, and that some of, so it depends how close you know the human interface elements, um, the problem solving creativity elements, um, and the helping side caring side of it will be incredibly important um, so I don't think that there's any area that's um, more or less impacted I think it's going to have its own journey around all of these things um, but yes with 80% of our economy um, predominantly in that area there, there's an opportunity to think it through um, rather than just letting it happen to that part of the economy but that's where people are employed which is also a little bit different than where GDP you know, generated from so mm. there's a much more complex equation sitting behind that one statistic as well. And also, uh, in my day job where I do a lot of marketing, I know that there's an opportunity for some businesses to buck a trend to automation and digitization if they think the hands-on human touch is going to give them a leading edge or a point of difference in the market that they can capitalize on. So in many ways, perhaps what we're going through now could open up more diversity of offering in the in the marketplace. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think that would be fair, but whether it'd be interesting to see whether that can occur to scale or not, I think. Mm. Um, would be an interesting question. Well, it was interesting, Steve, that you mentioned uh, the marketing area because there was some work done by some of these brand new, very clever analytics firms that scour job advertisements and the like and look at how occupations are changing and the nature of the skills involved and their pay scales. And one of the occupations they focused on was in the marketing area who, because of the data analytics that you can get now for, from consumers, are saying that that particular occupation is going to be as much impacted by digitisation and, and uh, the whole industry 4.0 thing than, uh, than many others. But you also mentioned the term uh, human touch, and I think the Foundation for Australian Youth, or Youth Australians, um, has a very good expression of the growth areas that are employment are in these higher order skills, but also in the human services area. And we know that is already occurring and it's more likely to expand over time. And they refer to the two key elements of that, which is high skills and high touch. And of course, the one area, if people are fearful about their jobs going or being automated or otherwise made redundant is the human skills, those innate human skills, for example, empathy that you would require in the human services area are not likely to get automated or converted into robots anytime soon. While you're in the saddle, Simon, I want to pick up on your past experience uh, with the uh, WA Department of mm -hmm. Training, the Ad Australian Industry Skills Committee. Uh, you've been seeing a lot of things from the WA end of the world, mm -hmm. which, of course, has a big reliance on the mining sector. So if we just take... Um, and I know Megan said we may not have the sort of careers that we might have thought of in the past, but you might be with an employer over an extended time still, but just doing lots of things. 
One of the benefits of the old ways of being in a job that lasts for a while is you build up domain knowledge yourself. And I remember some of the big banks, they have a bloodletting every now and then. They let a heap of people go, uh, get in young people, and they lose a heap of domain knowledge, which they then end up repeating mistakes that they could have avoided if they had those wise heads. Thinking of mining, and perhaps even more generally, do you see this as something we need to be mindful of as we tread through these waters? I think the direct answer to your question is there is absolute benefit at developing and reskilling your own staff rather than replacing staff whose skills may become redundant either temporarily or on a longer term basis with new staff. And the response from employers, as one of our studies showed, is that it's quite different. Some are more than happy and, in fact, Arguably, the highly productive firms are the ones that will actually take their own staff and retrain them and reskill them for those new occupational areas. Whereas others, and they're typically smaller, either don't have that capability or capacity and will typically replace their staff with someone who's been retrained in a new skill. So that's the first answer to that question. Thinking about the mining context in Western Australia, one of the leading edge industries, and in particular in those large multinational countries, uh, companies in Western Australia, they are absolute cutting edge in the automation of their operations. And of course, that will affect their employees and what we generally call operator training, which is someone that effectively operates any sort of mobile plant or fixed plant equipment as part of a whole production chain. Now, they know their jobs are changing. Now, what they've done in Western Australia was partner with one of the larger metropolitan tastes there to develop a qualification that allows those operators to move away from their current roles to embrace the new operator of the future. Mm-hmm. Perhaps to give you an illustration, whereas someone used to monitor the maintenance of the railway tracks uh, across the vast landscape of the Pilbara, uh, they'll be using drones in the future for that. So they are going to be retraining their operators to meet their requirements for the new operations of that company. Hmm. I just turn to Megan here, because I think you alluded to this earlier, that when there is change, it's not always bleak and the end of the world, but sometimes it creates new opportunities and new types of job to arise. Is, is Are you anticipating that is likely to be our future as well? Oh, I do. Uh, so I don't, I don't subscribe to the change is bleak view of the world, uh, and I think there'll be many, many new opportunities um, for existing workers, but obviously people coming into the workforce, um, which, which of course then challenges, well, do we have the right skills and capabilities in our sort of broader working age population? And I think that that's where the challenge then shifts to, and um, quite possibly not would be um, the answer. So we've got to really help people um, have a very agile skill base um, and an ability to continue to learn and grow so that they can continually be on the right side of change in terms of the transitions that are happening in the workplace and in, in fact the labour market to be on the right side of all of that because you know we do have a world leading mining industry and it is heavily automated so um, don't look for you know um, that that won't change and, and it's a good arrangement so where will the new jobs grow and some of them will be sort of that um, personal interface, the high touch stuff that Simon referred to that the Foundation for Young Australians have worked on a lot um, and some of that sort of creative problem solving type stuff and so there will be tremendous opportunities and tremendous new jobs going forward and, and I believe there will be plenty of them um, but it 
it is unfolding. How confident are you that the training aspects of the vet sector uh, are up to the game and, and doing enough so that they're ahead of the curve? Because it's often thought that what you learn in a typical course is five years behind where the world has moved. And I can imagine that's just going to get further and further apart if we're not careful. How is that looking? Uh, Simon, I'll start with you and then Meek and you might have some thoughts. Yeah, well, well, certainly one of the mantras of the vocational education system for a long time has been this notion of lifelong learning. But I'm not sure that in practice that's actually been really well embraced. Um, now there's an imperative because the nature of the skills, the pace of change of those skills will require a system that may still have early foundational qualification development for young people, but over their working life, they will have to get smaller pieces of learning in to be able to mm. adapt to their role. So not even a new job necessarily, they could be in the same job or with the same employer, but they'll need to upskill constantly. I'm not sure the training system right now is adaptive enough to that. Having said that, this requires the buy-in from employers as well as individuals to want to do that in the first place. Um, looking at the product development, there has been plenty of research and commentary about how that probably needs to improve. More recently, we had the Joyce Review for the Australian government that had a specific focus on making sure that the development of those products for skills and learning are a bit more nimble and just in time than they currently are. I think the um, challenge that you outlined is not just limited to the vet sector. I think schooling and universities have a similar challenge, but uh, but focusing on the vet sector, and Simon's articulated a lot of it very well, and I do completely agree that employers and individuals and the actual institutions within the sector need to um, be part of this their, our own reform journey, and it is an imperative, so that's completely accurate. Um, and so that does suggest that we do need some fairly substantial reform, um, and some of it goes to some of our core um, structures and um, pillars and the like, and there's no doubt the products, so products are usually the qualifications or the training programs, uh, or really the processes around them, uh, really do need to be thought through quite su substantially. It's it's not that they're wrong or bad, but um, do are they fit for purpose? Um, are, are they too rigid for how we need to move forward? Are they designed too much for the front end of the learning process rather than an ongoing or an upskilling approach? Um, and do we adequately fund all of this? And I think they're very big questions um, and they're absolutely on the table in front of all of us right now. And uh, I suggest that we need some pretty substantial reform in that space. And if I pick up on what I saw in the Future Skills Report, the Google Future Skills Report, it makes sense now. They're arguing that by 2040, uh, Australians will spend an additional three hours per week in education and training. That is a real, that is a fundamental mind shift because most of us think maybe every quarter we might top up with a little course, but we're talking um, you know, three hours per week. That has, to, has a cost of productivity, but at the same time, we need to be learning the right thing and not just ticking off a course for its own sake. Yeah, we probably make, need to make a distinction here between formal learning mm -hmm. through things like accredited courses and programs and qualifications and units. And whilst I'm not familiar exactly with what's underneath that study that Alpha Beta did that you just referred to, three hours could well be informal training on the job, learning from peers, 
and vendors and any other source of skills development. So it doesn't have to be what we might call accredited training, and I suspect that three hours a week would be virtually impossible to expect through a formal program. I know the AI group has done a lot of thinking about what we need from the education sector moving forward. And to just retackle that question slightly differently, I have two daughters aged 11 and 9. How should I be coaching them for the future? And what are you looking to from the tertiary sector, Megan, from the AI groups thinking about the future? What sort of mindsets are going to need to be adopted here? Well, I think you've got the future living under your roof, which would be my first comment, so that's <laughs> exciting. Um, I, and I think um, I, I think um, not, not limiting oneself to STEM skills, but just uh, recognition of the role that they're going to play, I think is uh, very important. And STEM skills doesn't mean you need to be a mathematician or a scientist, uh, because there's a lot of STEM underpinning in the services sector and the like. So I think we need to be clear about that. There, there's no doubt that digital literacy or a depth of talent um, and expertise around digital is just going to be increasingly important. Um, but I think really the most important thing um, from a learning perspective is to keep learning to be open to continuously learning, it, it move in and out. Some of it will be very formal, such as a qualification. Some of it will be quite informal, which is probably the stuff that Google was talking about. The boundaries between formal and informal will probably blur more. Uh, I think one thing is to understand the place of learning and the fact that there will be no definitive place of learning. Learning will happen everywhere and all of the time. Um, and the importance of learning at work will just continue to grow in my view. So they, um, the, when they enter the workforce, assuming it's an, at um, the post, end of post-compulsory education and probably a bit of tertiary education, um, they will um, enter the workforce really taking their learning experience with them. So the learning and the working or the learning and the employment will continue to intertwine for the rest of their working life. Whereas of our generation, we've probably had a more stop-start approach to it because that's the way it's been structured and we've intersected in and out. It'll be a much more continuous journey for them and they will be a bigger decision-making maker in their learning journey and that's where a lot of their direction, including employment direction, will be driven from. I think it's fair to say many of us have been able to give lip service to that notion of uh, lifelong learning and gotten away with it to varying degrees, but it's about to become very real very quickly. But on the same token, um, there's a lovely case study in an NCVR report about Red Arc, a company in South Australia, uh, Anthony Kittle's the owner. Uh, they actually are putting money into their strategic plan to make sure they're incorporating disruptive technologies into all their future planning to keep them at the leading edge of anything that's changing. That is another mind shift. And I am, is that the sort of thing that AI group would want to be encouraging, uh, Megan, that sort so, of embracing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think each company's got to decide its own um, destined journey with all of this. And I'm very familiar with the Red Ark story and with Anthony. And he um, also invests heavily in R&D every year and um, with his staff and their development. You know, he has, you know, very significant um, investments along those lines um, and which so it's no surprise that he is just such a leading example of 
a company that's grown, it's created its own future, it's got an exciting trajectory ahead of it. He gets people flocking to get jobs there because of the reputation of what he's done and the investment you get and your engagement in that journey while you're there. So, uh, And so the whole... Um, and one of the core premises, is, of course, is that um, not only is dis- disruption happening out in the marketplace, but we can disrupt ourselves as well. So, so he um, puts that whole disruptive change agenda at the heart of the journey. And that, I think, has made sure that they're an incredibly innovative um, company that is very, also very agile and very able to um, cope with change and disruption because it's part of their DNA. It's a wonderful story. Yeah, just to add to that, um, we also commissioned some research from the RMIT who looked at what are firms doing in terms of embracing, in particular, digital technologies. And the study defined three categories of employers. One, aggressive technology adoption and skills development. Keen technology adoption but cautious skills development and those firms that have an appreciation for it but don't have any investment in it. Now, what we have in the case of Redark is an example of a very aggressive adoption and doing something about it by developing their own staff. So I think that's a message for all firms. I imagine as we finish up now, uh, there are some people listening to this saying we have not mentioned the elephant in the room. If industry gets more and more efficient and effective and we need less humans are we going to have to embrace the debate around a living wage to support people who cannot find employment? Megan? Well, I'm not necessarily convinced that uh, there'll be less employment going forward. In fact, I I probably reject that premise. Mm -hmm. Having said that, um, the people that are in jobs now won't necessarily be the people in jobs in the future, you know, so there'll be some um, transition around that um, because of the changing nature of the skill. Uh, And I do think um, any society should have a really good debate about how best you manage any form of transition and how you don't leave people behind. And whether it's a living wage or whether it's intensive reskilling, upskilling and educational opportunities, you can have a debate about the type of support you put in place. But I think the important point is that you need to do something. You don't just leave um, change to um, travel ahead without actually looking at the whole of the economy and the whole of the society. Throughout the last 100 years or so, there's been points in history where people have said, well, we'll be working a 30-hour week or we won't, uh, well, all jobs will vanish and we'll have nothing to do. Uh, that hasn't changed. And in fact, workforce participation more broadly has increased quite substantially over that period. So I'm an optimist and I think that technology brings as much positive um, benefits to society and to jobs as they do anything else. Well, on that note, we should all get back to our own jobs uh, now. Megan Lilly, Head of Workforce Development AI Group, thank you for your time. Thank you. And Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER. Thanks, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments, with funding provided through the Australian Government, Department of Employment, Skills, Small and Family Business. For more information, please visit ncver.edu.au.